I think it is underappreciated the level of financial surveillance and censorship that is coming for us. Other jurisdictions like China are ahead of the game. They're showing us what's coming to the West. They're beating us in financial censorship. And the United States and the EU seems hell-bent on uh, narrowing that gap. I hope it's not too early. I don't think it is, but I think what the catalyst actually is to prove whether or not it is the right time is just seeing how many individuals are fed up. It's not just like a Bitcoin monetary thing, right? I think that the catalyst is gonna come from people demanding to be paid in Bitcoin. This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal, family, or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Will, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. You were previously at Unchained. Mm -hmm. Now you're building Zap, right? Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us like what you're working on? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, before I get into what I'm working on right the second, you know, you know, I was at Unchained for about three years. And uh, to put into context what I'm working on now is uh, at the time when I joined Unchained, I was convinced by many people um, as I was leaving my fiat job that the most important problem to work on in Bitcoin was custody. Uh, with the idea that uh, if we don't have, you know, both institutional grade and accessible personal uh, self-sovereign custody solved that uh, a lot of the other future problems didn't really matter. Um, you had to solve that first. So I wanted to work on that, was very motivated to work on that. Um, it's certainly not finished or done, but uh, the difference between today and say 2019 when I joined Unchained, it's very different. Um, not only <clears throat> can individuals obtain a security posture similar to, you know, if you have gold, you know, Fort Knox, right, uh, for a couple hundred bucks, which is pretty incredible. Um, there's just a lot of providers now. Uh, Multi-sig is not a weird thing anymore. It, it's, it, we used to have to explain it uh, to everyone as if they were five in 2019. Now, there's still a, a, a ways to go, but it's not some weird thing anymore. And there's just a lot of providers. Uh, you know, Unchained was sort of sitting on an island back then. And, uh, you know, I, I feel pretty confident that that problem is only going to get better, uh, or sorry, that, that those solutions are only going to get better from here and that we're entering into sort of an optimization, optimization, optimization phase uh, with regards to that. What I'm working on now was uh, very simply Parker and I, uh, after Unchained, we were talking about what we wanted to do next. And uh, while there are several things that we talked about and will continue to, to work on, one of them was uh, simply being able to get Bitcoin, where uh, obtain Bitcoin, where there's really only one way people do that right now, which is through exchanges and buying it. And uh, what we thought was that there was likely um, a number of people that wanted to accept Bitcoin and hold on to it. And we had a very specific way we wanted to do this. And as we looked around, we realized that, you know, we knew that there were places out there, you know, payment processors and things like that out there. And we wanted to check on them. But most of them, their main product was converting Bitcoin into dollars for whoever was accepting Bitcoin. Uh, there didn't seem to be outside of BTC pay server, uh, really very much in terms of, you know, people just trying to accept Bitcoin. And then very late in that process where Parker and I were like, well, we have to go build this. Um, 
we found this invoicing company uh, that John McGill had worked on out of uh, Pleb Lab. And in particular, I remember taking a look at the screen uh, where uh, what are called connections and seeing how he had set up all the wallets uh, that a merchant could set up to say like, well, this is where I want the Bitcoin to come when I send out, or not merchant, but wherever the business owner was gonna send out invoices, this is what wallet I want it to go to. I looked at Parker and I was like, oh my God, you know, this is it, right? Uh, or he said that to me, I can't even remember. But one of us said to each other, like, this this is it. And so we went and talked to John and we said, uh, you know, you know, this is really close to what we want to do. We weren't really thinking about business invoicing, although it's an absolutely great uh, use case for this. We were thinking more e-commerce. We talked about it more and more and, um, and loved John's vision and what he had already accomplished. So Parker and I joined forces with him uh, instead of starting out from scratch. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing now is that, um, you know, while I think that the most important problem four years ago was to make sure that people could hold on to Bitcoin securely, whether you're an institution or an individual, um, at this point, I think that that problem has advanced enough to where we should be, where I would like to focus my time on, um, how do people obtain Bitcoin without just relying on exchanges? So how do you earn it? How do you sell your, 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 your time or your goods and services, uh, for, uh, for Bitcoin. And that's what Zapright does. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it seems like a great product. Um, like, do you think the timing is like right now for Zapright? Like you said that there wasn't anything quite like Zapright, like BTC Pay Server, not really like a company or product, but. Yeah, I love BTC Pay Server, yeah. for, first of all. So let's, let's do two things here. One is love BTC Pay Server, and I want to differentiate Zapright from BTC Pay Server, mm. which is BTC Pay is sort of combining two things, right? Which is there's a payment processing type of product there, but it's a server product, yeah. right? It's a server. And for my use case, the server was overhead that I didn't want, right? I had a wallet that I wanted uh, funds to go to, all of that, but I was willing to, I, sorry, I was hoping that there was a provider that could abstract the server infrastructure okay. overhead away from me. Now, I know also with things like Voltage, even that use case is becoming easier, but really all I wanted um, and all we wanted was if I, you know, set up a blog or I have a store where I'm selling hats or whatever it is, right, is that I already have a wallet, right? And my customers have wallets. I just want an interface to connect my wallet to theirs. Um, that was it. I didn't want anything else. And I think that there's, I, I like these kind of in-between businesses. Unchained was very much an in-between business where on one extreme, you have a Coinbase, right? And on the other extreme, you have uh, you have uh, something like Nunchuck. It didn't exist at the time, but like back then it would have been doing multi-sig on Electrum or something, right? Where it's like, okay, that's kind of scary and, and a lot to take on, right? And this is, you know, just not getting the value of Bitcoin. And Unchained was very much like an in-between business where it's like, well, we want you to get kind of the benefits over here. You're going to have to give up something, but we can give you 80% of the value proposition if you do it this way, right? That's very much the way I see Zapright is this in-between thing where, um, you know, where BTC pay might be over here and like, yeah, that's the purest fucking story right there. Sorry. Do we curse on this, on this yeah, podcast? Okay. I guess you can. <laughs> I, guess, I guess you can. I, I have to, I have to uh, recalibrate a little bit. Uh, <laughs> this is, this is more professional. Sorry. Uh, is, uh, you, you know, it's a very purest way to do it and I like the product. Uh, and then you have something like open note over here where it's custodial and a lot of the customers are just using it to exchange back into dollars or BitPay or something like that. 
all fine products. I have no problem with any of them. It's just not what I wanted, right? And so we found this like middle ground where, yeah, you're not running a server, but um, you're taking no counterparty risk when it uh, when it pertains to actually like the, the funds. ZapRite doesn't touch Bitcoin. We, we, we don't have our own wallet. We don't get in the way with it. All we're doing is is taking your wallet, showing a QR code for the address, and funds are being sent that way. Nice. Do you think there's, like, on the topic of Bitcoin payments, do you think there's any catalyst that's you know, may have just happened or may happen sometime in the future that's going to, like, really usher in a new age of Bitcoin payments? Because I feel like it's, you know, the core use case of Bitcoin right now is just saving Bitcoin. And sure. most people, you know, I personally don't spend that much Bitcoin. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be a catalyst for that? Yeah, I think I think it's very similar to again, like harkening back to you know, not very many people were doing multisig in 2018, 2019. Is um, it's it's a bunch of individual decisions, right? I don't think it's a it's a moment. There are things like that will. I think uh, th- that work for both like the payment side and the saving side. There are events in the world, things like the Canadian trucker protests and seeing how you can be debanked, um, not in some you know conspiratorial manner, but as a matter of policy, right? As a matter of public policy, where the goal of the Canadian government is to um, cut off from the financial s- system anyone uh, that they disagree with, right? Um, and they've demonstrated the ability to do so, and we should assume that this is you know on a high list of priorities for any state in the world at this point is uh, to start using those tools to a greater and greater extent. So there are those types of events that I think will encourage more people to get off their butts and do it. But the way I really think about it is that, um, and this goes back to the timing thing I didn't answer, is that, um, you know, I hope it's the right time to be building a business right this, but, you know, that's kind of the whole point of being you know, first or second or third or in the very early, you know, days of this is that you don't quite know, right? Certainly if you were trying to build a multi-sig product in 2014, you might've missed the time a little bit, right? You wouldn't have known it at the time. Um, heck, even the CoinKite guys had done a yeah. product like that, you know, very similar to Unchained or Casa uh, around that timeline. So I hope it's not too early. I don't think it is, but I think what the catalyst actually is to prove whether or not it is the right time is just seeing how many individuals uh, are fed up, right? Or how many individuals see that, well, they're taking in all these dollars and then they're, you know, going and paying exchange fees to turn it into Bitcoin. And then they're, you know, putting it into, you know, you know, cold storage or their wallet of choice is, um, that there's a shorter route to get there. And, but it's not just like a Bitcoin monetary thing, right? I think that the catalyst is going to come from people demanding to be paid in Bitcoin, right? So I'm a merchant, I'm selling something, I'm going to give, you know, obviously right now, you'd be a little bit nuts not to have USD next to it, and we allow for that and everything. However, um, you know, I'm going to give you a 20% discount if you pay in Bitcoin, because that's what I want, right? Or you're not going to allow for dollar, you know, transactions at all. Um, it's those individual decisions. Uh, you know, I have a lawyer that I've used recently and, you know, when, when he engaged us, he, this is before zap, right? He just said, I'd like you to pay me in Bitcoin. That was kind of a surprise to me. Um, I hadn't had too many people do that. My family, we've lived on the Bitcoin standard for a while. If we owe each other something or someone bought tickets to a football game or whatever, we pay each other back that way. It's just been kind of standard for me for a long time. Of course, I couldn't invoice them. I just send them an address on a signal, you know, message or something like that. But getting back to to, to your question is, uh, I think the catalyst, like, there will be world events that like wake certain people up. But 
really what it is is just a bunch of individuals deciding that they want to circ- circumvent this process of getting dollars, turning it into Bitcoin, and then you know moving it from different layers of counterparty risk. Here, you can just do your thing. You can sell your service as a lawyer or a dentist or whatever. I think you'll see a lot of sort of uh, uh, independent proprietors, right, that just that, get, that can make autonomous decisions for themselves do this. Even something like MicroStrategy is kind of that, right? It's a, it's a majority held business, even though it's public by a single person, right? Now there's approvals and all that stuff, but like he can really push things through. So the more sort of centralized and small these uh, businesses are, I think they'll be the first adopters of this. Nice. Yeah, it makes sense. But you're saying like even micro strategy, it's like if they're buying, you know, half half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, Sailor just might, happened this morning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sailor might be like, um, okay, why are we doing that when we're selling, you know, hundreds of million, probably like a hundred million dollars worth of revenue each year? We should just be collecting Bitcoin from our from our customers. Yeah, I think you know there, there's a lot of things at play in this, yeah. right? You have people that 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 want Bitcoin in their treasury. So they go out and buy Bitcoin, Mass Mutual or or yeah. Block, formerly Square, or MicroStrategy for that matter, right? And you start they will start to come to the conclusion there's a better way to do this, right? Yeah. Uh, now those are all at like majorly huge, you know, uh, scales, but um, but there are a lot of people, you know, clients of ZapRite right now, you know, we, we have a dentist out in the out in the Mountain West, right? And uh, he's been stacking stats, sats for years. And he decided sort of on a lark after seeing one of our blog posts, I'm going to start doing it. Uh, I'm going to start, you know, offering uh, to be uh, to pay for your dental work in Bitcoin. And what's really funny is the first text I got after we onboarded him was not from him. It was from one of his clients who I, I didn't I wasn't set up. I didn't send him there, but he'd gone in and uh, said, like, holy crap, I just paid for my dental work with Bitcoin at this place. Uh, he gave me a 20 percent discount for it, you know, all this stuff. It was uh, it was kind of cool. Is that I think you see a lot of that. Right. Is that, you know, Michael Saylor can make that that decision almost independently. But these people obviously can. And that's a way bigger economy than the micro strategies of the world. Right. Is yeah. that all these independent businesses get to make that decision for themselves. That would be, yeah, that would be really cool to like go to a local business or a local like dentist and, you know, not know that they accept Bitcoin and be like, wait, I can you know, save 20% by just paying you in Bitcoin. <laughs> there's a really cool thing that happened up in McKinney, Texas, just north yeah. of Dallas. Um, there's a great Bitcoin meetup there run by John. And I just forgot his last name. He'll probably kill me for this, <laughs> but they have a great meetup. And one of the things they did, and I, I don't know if they're still doing it because McKinney's not a huge place is they would hold their meetup at different places in the downtown every single time. And one of the goals of the meetup was to get that proprietor to start accepting Bitcoin payments. Mm. And so downtown McKinney is actually very charming and, and nice. Uh, it's a, like one of those old school, you know, uh, town squares that Texas has a lot of. And, um, and if you go there now, uh, a dozen of them take, take Bitcoin, um, as payment. Uh, now they were sort of coerced, not coerced. Uh, <laughs> they were, they were persuaded very heavily into doing that. But, um, you know, what, what I, what I'm looking at is I'm seeing more and more people that don't just want the, Oh, we, we just want any type of business. So we'll say we take Bitcoin, but we're going to turn it into dollars. What, what I'm actually seeing are people saying, I want to accept Bitcoin because I want Bitcoin and my business wants Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And this is a more streamlined way to do it. And I think that that's the first step, but then there's multiple steps that need to happen. Right. 
So if you have obligations in Bitcoin, it could be that one of your vendors is saying they want to be paid in Bitcoin. And so you're having to go source Bitcoin to pay your vendor, right? And you're doing that all the time. And then someone's saying like, you know, you could just accept Bitcoin as well. And you're saying, well, well if I had some Bitcoin, I could take care of these obligations without that, that other unnecessary step. Again, individual decisions that, that start to build into something that looks more circular, right? It doesn't start circular. You can't force that on people. You can't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's just a bunch of individuals that creep up on you. And all of a sudden you say, wait, I'm going to take my paycheck in Bitcoin because I can pay my gas bill or my taxes or, you know, whatever in Bitcoin as well. And I can stop all these unnecessary exchange steps. Right. Um, but I think that, yeah. So, you know, first step is kind of just individuals saying they want it. Second step is that they start to find they have more and more obligations in Bitcoin because you, Joe, don't want to spend your Bitcoin, but it's not really up to you if you want to buy something over here and they're saying, I want your Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Then you're going to have to say, well, how do I start getting more Bitcoin? <laughs> because like now I'm having to spend it over here and you're going to say, well, Unchained, why don't you start paying me in Bitcoin, <laughs> right? And, the, and you say, I want half my salary in that. And then they have to go figure out how to do that, right? And then Unchained starts saying like, well, we use this external marketing firm that and they want Bitcoin. So we're going to have more in our balance sheet. It all kind of works in that, in that type of way. And we already see it to it, it. It's very, very small and, and, and just sort of, you know, burgeoning right now. But just the fact that so many companies have decided to keep it on their balance sheet starts that process. Yeah. The way you're framing it makes it seem like it could become sort of like a, a viral f feedback loop, whereas like one person does it, then another person does it. And then all of a sudden you have multiple options to, to pay in Bitcoin and you're like, okay, I need to do it too. Let's take a quick moment to talk about the Unchained IRA. With the Bitcoin price moving above 40000 the Unchained IRA is breaking records this month. With a Roth Bitcoin IRA, you don't pay capital gains on the appreciation of Bitcoin. Unchained offers a solution. They make it simple for you to set up a Bitcoin IRA while keeping control of your Bitcoin keys. Use code FRONTIER for $100 off and schedule your free consultation today at unchained.com IRA. Now back to the conversation. Yeah, I, I do see that. I mean, like there's the viral loop of of just sort of the death spiral of the alternative, right? Which is, that's the balance sheet question, mm -hmm. right? Um, when you come to that hard truth of like, you know, if I'm going to keep, you know, if you're a small business, $10,000, $20,000 sitting around, right? Or if you're a bigger business, like MicroStrategy, a billion dollars sitting around, what do I want to keep that in, right? So that's one type of decision. But the other types of decisions you have to make are, very simply, just like the payment rails themselves. What's simpler, going to a store and buying something with Bitcoin or going to a store and buying something with dollars, right? And my argument is that it is becoming easier, you know, over the last several years with the Lightning Network, it is actually simpler with less friction to go buy something with Bitcoin. So it's not just the monetary policy argument anymore. You're actually seeing products and and customer experiences that are much, much better when you transact in Bitcoin. That's one of the things I always say with ZapRite is that, you know, it's not enough just to say, hey, we're Bitcoin. And then we just get those customers that are rooting for us and saying, you know, it actually does have to be better right? Yeah. It has to be faster. It has to be more reliable. You have to get to final settlement better. You have to have more protection. You know, that, that does have to be true. We have to outcompete not just on monetary policy, but on ease of use as well. And I would say that like in most cases we're already there. It might not be obvious to everyone yet because they don't transact in Bitcoin very often, 
I don't transact in Bitcoin all that often. And honestly, before ZapRite, my experiences were fairly poor, right? Um, in terms of failed transactions, in terms of pasting, you know, uh, uh, addresses into Signal and things like that. But with ZapRite, like when I want to be paid back by someone, a lot of my friends live in Dallas, live in New York, wherever, and I send them an invoice on ZapRite, it's a lot easier than you know, doing the cut and paste and all the stuff with the addresses and in in Signal, and then when when I want to sell something, it's a lot easier than setting up Stripe. Yeah, that's definitely fair. Um, I want to dive in a little bit on the the discount idea because you talked about the local dentist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, giving a twenty percent discount in Bitcoin. Sure. Do you think that that's going to be a trend that continues? More people offer a discount. I think so. I mean, uh, the first I ever saw it like on a really big scale was here in Austin. Uh, it was during the 2017 run-up and Richard Garriott, who's a local, you know, legend started origin gaming, uh, Lord British from Ultima online. You know, he's, he's the man. Uh, he's great. Uh, if you were a kid playing early MMOs, like Lord British is, is the guy. Anyway, Richard Garriott, uh, longtime Austinite, uh, you know, sort of mini mogul, uh, guy, he was selling what's called, what was called the Lake Austin ranch, which was this huge property on Lake Austin where he had built a replica of Shakespeare's garden. And, uh, he was building this, you know, he was in the process of building this, you know, crazy 30,000 square foot house or something. And for whatever reason, he abandoned it. When he listed it, um, it was something like, you know, $26 million or something like that. Like I, I can't, maybe it was 40. Uh, I, I don't really know, but in 2017 it said, or 20% discount for buying it in Bitcoin, which would have been, you know, 10,000 or a thousand something Bitcoin back then. I can't, I can't I, again, I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but he did do the discount. And that was, you know, a rich guy looking at the, at the, uh, what was happening in the world and saying like, oh crap, I need to get Bitcoin now. And this is an asset where I can get it. I don't know if that, that transaction actually sold for Bitcoin or not, but it would have been pretty silly for someone, even if they had the cash to not just go buy Bitcoin <laughs> and then, uh, and then get it for, uh, Richard there, uh, especially with no capital gains, if you're doing it right away. So, uh, trend. Yeah. I mean, uh, before we had that option of paying a premium for fiat, uh, on, uh, on ZapRite, it was one of our most requested features. Um, and so, you know, we, we moved pretty quickly to get it. I think uh, the first person who was banging down my door on that was Jimmy Song, who was very disappointed that he had to go to Bitblock Boom. Uh, even though he's a very happy customer, he was very disappointed that he couldn't differentiate, he couldn't show his preference for what he actually wanted. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I think, I think the actual trend that we'll see and why like those discounts and premiums are important is that it's a way to signal preference as a merchant, right? or as a, as, as a, uh, a contractor or something like that is that you say, you know, well, you could pay me in dollars, but it's going to cost you 10% more, yeah. or you could pay me in Bitcoin. It's going to cost you 10% less or whatever you want that number to be. Uh, so again, uh, the trend I think we'll see is based off of preference is that you'll see those types of discounts uh, or premiums, however, which way you want to think about it, uh, based off the preference of the customer. Now, there's a lot of like card user agreements and things like that. Like in the fiat world, you used to see this a lot of people saying, you know, like, like 5% extra if you're paying with a credit card yeah. and the card networks ended up sort of outlawing that behavior with the point of sale systems and things like that saying like, you can't differentiate between cards and cash. Right. And so they uh, couldn't do that anymore. But, um, 
as cards became like more ubiquitous, like like as they cross cash, uh, this would have been in the early 2000s as like the main way to buy things at point of sale. Um, during that time, the merchants were not happy about it, right? They would give you a discount for giving you cash, right? And I think you'll see the same with Bitcoin. It's like for a while here, uh, you're not discriminating against credit cards necessarily. You're just yeah. discriminating against US dollars or euros or yen or whatever you're accepting on the fiat side. Yeah. So that's what I think you'll see. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I feel like I have been in restaurants re- somewhat recently and seeing like that the fee is like, pay credit card, but you have to pay 3% extra. Maybe that's illegal, I guess. (laughs) So it's legal if you put it on, so the card agreements do recognize that if you put it on the receipt that that this is a line item you're being charged for, right? Then, then, then it is within the, uh, the card agreements typically, um, is what I've seen. But, uh, yeah, I mean like, you know, it's 4% or 3% or 2% depending on what card you use. And, um, when you're running a low margin, you know, brick and mortar business, uh, that's, that's pretty rough, you know? Um, but people have dealt with it for a while by just raising prices across the board. Right. Um, it's one of the reasons why things are more expensive. Yeah. Is that like a, a target customer for you guys that you guys are trying to reach out to? Like if someone's, you know, a local restaurant is already doing something like that where they charge 3% for credit cards, are they more susceptible to accept Bitcoin and recognize that like, hey, there's, you know, not many transaction fees on this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Is that like, you know, again, that that's sort of like you have the monetary policy side over here, but then you have this like it has to be better, yeah. like less friction, all these things. And like when someone can say, oh, I'm going to charge you know, 0.01 Bitcoin for this product and then 0.01 Bitcoin ends up in my wallet and there's no one else taking from me. Like that's a pretty nice, uh, uh, experience for, for the merchant, you know, who's used to paying off middlemen at every single stage. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a wake up call for people. Um, but you kind of have to experience it, right? Yeah. I I think you'll see a lot of people dip their toes in and I don't mind. I mean, like people are going to dip their toes in with, with, uh, sort of the custodial models and exchange it back for dollars. And then, you know, there are different paths to get here. Right. But certainly if they haven't gotten the, the monetary policy side yet, then uh, understanding it from like a frictionless side, from like a, a fee or middleman side is hopefully another way they get it. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything unexpected that might be a major catalyst for Bitcoin payments? Anything unexpected? Yeah. Well, if I knew it wouldn't be unexpected, would it? Um, no, I mean, like, I think I think there are things that people don't think would would affect them a lot that, uh, you know, Canadian protesters over here, yeah. pornographer over here. I'm not I'm not a protester. and I'm not a pornographer. So what do I care? But you've seen it recently with like uh, certain credit cards or banks saying, you know, like we don't want to see statements from, you know, uh, gun shops. Yeah. It's like, well, it's not illegal. You do. I mean, not that protesting or pornography is illegal either, uh, even though, you know, I'm not either. Uh, you know, I do buy guns and it's like, well, what do you mean? Like, why, 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 why guns? What else? You know, meat, uh, cow farts. Like, is that your next thing? Right. Um, so I think it is underappreciated. Right. Uh, the level of financial surveillance and and. Um, and censorship that is coming for us. Um, I think other jurisdictions like China are um, ahead of the game here. They're the head of the curve. They're showing us what's coming to the West. Uh, The Westerners, they're not, you know, you know, it's not, uh, 
we are not in conflict with China when it comes to this, right? We're trying to catch up to them. Uh, uh, they're beating us in financial censorship, and the United States and the EU seems hellbent on uh, narrowing that gap. And uh, so because of that, I think that, you know, again, it's easy to say, okay, well, it's also the gun people, and then it's the meat people, and then, you know, it's going to be, you know, private school tuition, and then it's going to be, you know, whatever, and it's going to continually ratchet up to the point where you realize what's always been true is that it's not your money, yeah. right? You know, and, and these aren't your decisions to make. And um, it kind of just has to happen to you, I think. Uh, you know, there, there will be a certain population that gets that sooner. But um, I do, you know, I don't blame people for this. Like, until you've been hit over the head, you know, until you've been robbed, um, it's hard to take it all that seriously. Yeah. So you think the end game to financial censorship is really just more people adopting Bitcoin? I think it's, I mean, it's our, our best tool right now, it's the best right? Bet, yeah. You know, uh, I don't think going and voting is doing a hell of a lot for that, right? Like, uh, I hope that's not too cynical for a professional podcast, but it's, um, it seems increasingly clear that, um, that just about everyone is on board with closing this uh, financial censorship gap um, between the East and the West here. And that uh, while there are some very brave uh, politicians out there that are uh, fighting against this, um, uh, they're, they're, they're a, a major minority, yeah. right? And um, so, yeah, and, and I also think this is very consistent with what, what you know, you know, my heroes that were talking about Bitcoin in 2010 and 11 and 12 that I was, when I was figuring all this out, you know, they said this from day one, right? Um, now they're not, they're not perfect and we d didn't have all the ideas figured out back then, but this one certainly is true is like the censorship resistant. In this frontier moment, Will is talking about Bitcoin censorship resistance. This is one of its defining features, ensuring that transactions cannot easily be blocked or altered by any single entity. Bitcoin is like a robust, decentralized postal system operating in a vast network where valid messages, transactions, are always delivered. When you want to send a message, a Bitcoin transaction, you write it down and drop it in your nearest post box. In this city, there are special couriers, miners, whose job it is to deliver these messages, but they can only carry a limited number of messages in their bags. So they choose which messages to deliver based on the tips, transaction fees, attached to each message. The higher the tip, the more likely your message is to be picked up first. Now suppose one courier doesn't like the content of your message or who you are and decides not to deliver it. Censorship. If one refuses your message, another will pick it up and deliver it, provided you've attached a sufficient tip. In summary, Bitcoin's network operates like this decentralized competitive postal system, ensuring that transactions are processed fairly and without bias, making it truly censorship resistant. And now back to Will. Aspect of Bitcoin, and then if tools are being built, that are native enough to Bitcoin to where even though you have a ZapRite or you have an Unchained or you have a Casa or you have a River or you have a something like that, if you can do it in a way to to um, preserve that function of Bitcoin, preserve that value of the censorship resistance, which of course is what I think you know those extreme sides of businesses are doing very very well, like on the BTC Pay server. Even the in-between businesses do a really good job of this because, you know, again, no counterparty risk. You know, ZapRite could be shut down, I guess, you know, under under the right circumstances, but no one's losing any money or anything like that because of it. They're not frozen out. They still have their wallets. They can still transact, all of that. 
It's a beautiful thing about Bitcoin. And it's been said to death, kind of, right? This aspect of censorship resistance. But like, um, uh, it can't be understated how important it is. And every year since Bitcoin's been created, um, it's gotten more and more important. And we see bigger and bigger things. You know, when Bitcoin was created, like, uh, I have a tweet pinned from 2013. I think it was the first, I mean, I didn't talk about Bitcoin uh, in the early days, like publicly, it just, I didn't think anyone cared about it other yeah. than me and my brother. Um, so there's no reason to talk about it. Um, but it, when in 2013, I think it was April 1st, I'm pretty sure it was April Fool's Day. Uh, for me, that censorship resistance really came into focus. Uh, and I made this tweet, I said, what would you rather have? Um, $50 in a European bank or one Bitcoin? Because at the time that was the exchange rate. Um, or 50 euros in a bank and, or, or, um, or a Bitcoin. And, uh, the reason for that was that there was a bail-in in Cyprus, mm. right? And that was when Cyprus basically said, Hey, if you have over 10,000 euros in your account, that's, we need that right now. Right. I don't know. I don't know how that ended up playing out, but, um, certainly the ability for the government to come in and seize that was very true. Of course, the early Bitcoiners would talk about the, uh, executive orders from FDR to seize gold and stuff like that, but that was very abstract, yeah. right? Like, you know, people don't really think about that, but since Bitcoin has been created, we had Cyprus, we had, uh, Venezuela try to get their gold back from the bank of England. They said, nah, it's like, well, really? Like you, that's kind of your only job is to give people their stuff like and um it seemed that uh the uh communists of the world uh that were pretending to be democratic uh were uh you know sort of shedding their skin and competing against each other to say like no no we have more control we have more control we have more control canadian protesters we have more control um uh you want to buy a gun we have more control so yeah i mean like every year it just gets more and more obvious and eventually it's going to hit everyone they're going to have a thing they want to do or a thing they want to buy or a service they want to sell and uh, someone's going to tell them no, even though it's not illegal, it's perfectly within the you know, laws of their country uh, to do. And uh, they're going to get fed up with it. And that's a that's a very good way to reason to start paying attention to Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. The 50 euros in, in one Bitcoin example is, was interesting because you're basically saying like it, the exchange rate doesn't really matter, but it's like the the security that you get withholding Bitcoin and like the freedom that you get. Yeah, yeah I could have said 50,000. It yeah. didn't really matter. It's just like, cause one of them's yours and one of them's not. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it was just proven to everyone in Cyprus that that's not your money. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's so many examples of this, you know, I'm just talking about the really big ones, but like, you know, cause when you say a catalyst, it's like, well, for the people in Cyprus, I'm sure that was a catalyst for like your, your, your guy in Texas, it probably wasn't right. Yeah. But, um, JP Morgan's saying, or, 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 or Venmo saying that uh, you can't spend money on a gun, that's going to hit a lot of Texans and not people in Cyprus. And people in Cyprus are like, what do you care? You know, Europeans don't get why Americans want guns so bad. Uh, even even very conservative ones uh, seem not to get that. But um, yeah, I mean, it kind of has to happen to you, right? Um, yeah, so uh, I, I just think that uh, it's not one thing. It's just the trend that we see and people sort of trying to outcompete each other and uh, flexing their censorship muscles um, is that uh, they seem hellbent on on outcompeting each other there. So it's going to hit everyone. Yeah. Do you think like in the dominoes of Bitcoin payments, like 
is a local like in-person business going to be more susceptible or more open to accepting Bitcoin payments than an online business or vice versa? Or do you think it really doesn't matter? I don't think it in-person versus online matters all that much. Um, I think that, uh, I think, okay, first of all, it matters a little bit, right? Uh, I do think people online are more likely to adopt, you know, faster just because they have an easier way to connect with a customer that would be able to pay. It's like if someone just shows up and you're saying no cash, no credit cards, only Bitcoin. Yeah. And they're like, well, I have Bitcoin, but I don't have it on me. You know, yeah. like online, you just have a little bit more flexibility. I think, I think the, the real paradigm you want to look at though is, um, uh, is, uh, how does this, how do decisions like that get made? Right. And at bigger organizations, it's going to be more difficult to accept Bitcoin because decisions like that are, are harder to push through and more tightly, closely held businesses, ind independent proprietors, contractors, things like that, they can just decide to do it. And so we'll naturally see them make that decision faster than the bigger organizations. We know about the bigger organizations more because they have press releases and, and, uh, and they're buying it, you know, they're filling their treasuries at a big scale. I mean, you know, heck, even Microsoft, well before MicroStrategy was accepting Bitcoin on the Xbox store, right? And I've heard rumors that they might still have some of that Bitcoin. <laughs> um, so, um, so it is possible at the bigger organizations, it's just more likely to occur on a mass scale at these smaller businesses to start out with, but those smaller businesses become big businesses or they get hired and bought into the bigger businesses and they change culture there and they make decisions themselves as well. And, um, so, and independent lawyers start law firms and, uh, you know, all that stuff happens. And so it's a gradual process, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I would frame it that way is like the more tightly held a business is, the more likely they are to make this type of decision in the early days, which yeah. I think we're very much in the early days of this. Definitely. Yeah. As the Bitcoin payments industry grows, what's going to happen to credit card companies? Are they in the long run pretty much dead? Are they going to try to adopt Bitcoin somehow or what do you of think? Of course. Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, they're, you know, they're looking out for number one, like, you know, again, we're very early days. There's no benefit for them doing it right now. It's just like, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, why isn't Apple taking a really serious uh, uh, stance towards Bitcoin for their treasury? You know, they have all the money in the world. Why haven't they thought about this yet? And it's like, I almost think like Bitcoin's not successful enough yet to matter to Apple. And it doesn't really matter to them. Like, it doesn't matter if Bitcoin's $10,000 or $10 million. It's like when 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 it's $10 million, it makes a lot more sense for Apple to 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 uh, start holding their treasury in it. They're not, they're not looking at their treasury as a way to gain money. They're looking at yeah. the treasury as a way to maintain money, right? And so actually the, the more stability and bigger Bitcoin is, the more likely they are to use it. Um, you know, I used to talk to people back when, when Bitcoin was $1,000 is that Bitcoin literally couldn't be uh, Apple's treasury. It wasn't big enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, they would have all the Bitcoin, right? <laughs> and so uh, for... Uh, there, there's like a sense of proportion that people have to have, but also like a sense of necessity that these merchants have, right? So on the credit card side, I would argue that it's very similar to the Apple side is that they're, they're moving around, you know, a Bitcoin size network every day, every week, right? It's not big enough for their attention yet. And it's not their fault, right? They shouldn't be paying attention to Bitcoin right now. We should, you know, we should be building this up. That's not what they do. They're big established companies. I don't, I, I don't even think that's a bad decision on their part, but they will. Right. Um, it just has to get to a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to like Bitcoin payments and like why I personally don't use it, I guess I have my city credit or city credit card where I mm -hmm. get like 2% back and 
I'm spending money that's not not even mine, and yeah. I you know can pay it back later, and I'd get charged zero percent interest if, as long as I pay my credit card on time. Do you think under a Bitcoin standard there will be products like that, or is that like a symptom of fiat money that doesn't really make sense? It's totally a symptom of fiat easy money, yeah. right? It's the same symptom we have. Why are we building 70, you know, 65 story buildings in Austin, Texas? You know, you can't build a 65 story building in Austin, right? Without easy money. Yeah. The risk is just way too high, right? You can't operate, you know, these cash back reward, you know, blah, blah, blah type stuff on a Bitcoin standard long term, uh, because uh, those things only work in an inflating, you know, in a predictably inflating economy, uh, or predictably inflated currency. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like certain certain things are going to look very familiar. And certain things are going to look very, very different, right? Um, uh, you only it's not that hard. Go back and look at how what did financial services look like under a gold standard? You know, what did they look like during the Civil War? When you went to go buy a house, how did you buy a house? You didn't take out an 80% mortgage, I'll tell you that, right? It's too much risk, right? Because gold was gold, right? And, and, and money could be exchanged for gold. Paper money could be exchanged for gold at the time. So you saved and you bought a house. Now, uh, I've been corrected on this point is that like there were lending programs for like 10% of the equity or something like that, you know, that, that were around that were considered pretty safe, but, um, but certainly not like the inverse of that yeah. where you can, where you can buy a house for 10% equity and, and, and finance 90% of it or with a car, you know, you know, five years ago, you could buy a car for zero cash. They just give you a car and they're like, Hey, pay us like seven months or something. None of that makes any sense. Right. Um, and you can only do it in an easy money environment. So, uh, you know, your credit card, you know, uh, you know, set up right now, take advantage of it. Right. You know, um, you know, abuse the fiat system as much as you can, uh, within the letter of the law. Um, it's just, uh, you know, as the U S dollar in general, or any of the fiat currencies, those types of behaviors are not sustainable. And uh, what, on the Bitcoin standard, what you'll see is uh, much, much uh, greater appreciation for savings and for uh, capital expenditures and investments and stuff like that to be financed through savings and not through debt. Yeah. So it sounds like you pretty much agree with Parker, Parker Lewis's, you know, great definancialization. And it's the best article he ever wrote by yeah. far. Mm. Uh, he has a, he has a very articulate, amazing way of saying that. I mean, basically what I'm saying right now is, is Parker's brain entering my brain. But you know, when we would talk about it, um, you know, I have a much less articulate way of saying it, which is, you know, something like, um, you know, you're an electrician, right. And you make you know, some of these electricians make 150 grand a year. Great job, right? But you're a fucking idiot if you don't know which company is going to cure cancer. You can't have savings unless you know which company is, is going to win the AI race. And you're like, I'm an electrician. Like, I do a good job. I make a lot of money. I have my family. But I'm an idiot if I don't know if Google or Microsoft is going to win. And that's what my whole savings life is based off of. That's the way my brain works. And then Parker turns it into these, <laughs> not turns my ideas, that is his idea, yeah. but like turns it into this beautiful thing. But like, yeah, it's such, a, it's such an obviously idiotic, stupid thing is that you can't just save your money, right? I do a good job. I provide a service and I'm going to save my money, right? And you can't do it unless you can prognosticate who's gonna cure cancer or else, or else you, you go broke. Yeah. yeah. It's a crazy system. I mean, we definitely need to fix the money. Let's talk about building Bitcoin products because I know yeah. before Unchained or, and ZapRite, you were working at Stack Overflow, I believe. Yes. Yeah. How is building on Bitcoin you know, different from building a normal technology product? 
Yeah, I'm gonna get kind of schizophrenic and answer this like 10 different ways. Go for it. Um, so first of all, just, uh, you know, I'll say that uh, building on Bitcoin, like relying on the protocol, it's actually much easier than most of the protocols you have to, you know, deal with in the fiat world because Bitcoin's very deliberate, it's very open. Uh, uh, changes to the protocol are telegraphed months, years in advance sometimes, right? In this frontier moment, Will is talking about how potential changes to the Bitcoin protocol are discussed and communicated months, even years in advance. This is relevant to the block size war from 2015 to 2017. Picture Bitcoin as a growing frontier town with a single busy main street, the Bitcoin blockchain. As the town grew, the street became congested. The residents, Bitcoin users, and local businesses, exchanges, and miners faced a crucial question, how to expand the street to accommodate more traffic without losing the town's original character and core principles. A group of influential town planners, major exchanges and miners, proposed a dramatic change, demolish some old buildings to widen the main street, increase the block size through a hard fork. This would solve the congestion problem, but it would alter the town's landscape and wasn't backwards compatible, rendering old maps, previous versions of Bitcoin, obsolete. This plan posed a significant risk. Changing the town too drastically could split the community, leading to the formation of two separate towns. This was a major concern as it would weaken the identity and collective strength of the original town. A group of townspeople proposed an ingenious, less disruptive solution. Build alleyways alongside the main street. Implement SegWit, a soft fork, thereby increasing traffic flow without altering the main street's historic character and foundational principles. After many discussions, the alleyways were built, providing a creative solution to congestion while keeping the town intact and unified. Bitcoin, like our frontier town, maintains its identity and cohesion through a bottom-up, consensus-driven approach to development. There is no CEO or central planner of Bitcoin. And now back to Will. And so as someone working in industry, relying on that core protocol to be stable, solid, you know, it's not great for someone like me if Bitcoin's changing all the time, right? That's not a welcome thing if you're a technologist building on top of a protocol. Um, uh, actually, slow and steady is exactly what you want uh, with long cycles of being able to contemplate future changes into your business, right? So in that sense, um, Bitcoin's actually the gold standard in software development is that like, there's nothing more stable to build on. But there are side industries and things like that that are very chaotic in Bitcoin. So if you're working at Unchained and you're trying to integrate all these different um, uh, hardware wallets into your product, that can be chaotic because they can change things all the time, right? And so one of the things I worked on really hard at Unchained was like trying to get these agreements with the hardware wallets where like just so we would know what was going to change so we could update our product so we didn't have downtime or scary things, you know, uh, happening with our customers. So, you know, there's kind of both sides to that where like, you know, Bitcoin itself, the best it could be. The industry is still maturing, right? Imagine if you were a game developer and Microsoft comes off comes out with the Xbox, you sink $100 million into development of a game, and then they change something with their chip, which means that now your game's not compatible, right? They don't do things that way, right? Because it's a very mature business, and Microsoft guarantees certain specifications that, that your game will, will work off of, and you make sure that you work around those guarantees. B the Bitcoin industry is getting there, but so that's the, the good and bad side of it. Um, on the neutral side is that it's just software development. 
It's the same thing, yeah. right? Um, and generally speaking, if you're a really good programmer or a really good X, uh, building products in the web world, embedded systems world or anything, you'll be good at Bitcoin as well. Right. And it needs all those. Right. You know, we need web products. We need embedded systems products, uh, hardware wallets and and uh, HSMs and things like that. Right. So there's something for everyone there, I believe, uh, in terms of skill set. But, you know, I'm just starting to do some writing on this, uh, which is uh, I haven't done a lot of public writing um, ever. And so when this comes out, actually, this should be uh, live where I'm writing about just software development uh, more generally. It'll it'll geared towards Bitcoin later, but I'm, I'm talking about it very abstractly just as software development, which uh, I don't think Bitcoin's particularly different, right? Uh, especially the industry around Bitcoin. The the core protocol is necessarily different. Um, and uh, what I'm trying to get across to people, hopefully, is that to avoid one of the mistakes I made when uh, I discovered Bitcoin, I just started working at, at Stack Overflow when I discovered Bitcoin. And... Um, I came to the conclusion that I didn't really have anything to offer the Bitcoin world. It was, in my mind, there were two things you could do. You could work on the core protocol as a programmer, because it didn't need people like me that are product managers, which I couldn't do, <clears throat> or you're gonna build an exchange, and there was nothing else to do, really. And I, did, I wasn't very interested in building an exchange. Uh, I could already see the trend going towards shitcoin casinos. It just wasn't really something I, uh, I, I was interested in, so I, threw myself into Stack Overflow and it was very rewarding and a great experience, but um, it was really Parker <laughs> who snapped me out of it, right? Um, I snapped him out of his fiat mindset and then he snapped me out of realizing that, um, you know, no dumbing, you have a lot to offer. We're just building software over here. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? Like if Bitcoin is money, what's the product of money? The product of money is financial services. And in the financial services world, there's a lot of things we need to build. It's not just exchange. Exchange is one financial service custody and lending and um you know and then and then doing exchange but like doing it in a way bitcoin native way uh, eliminating counterparty risk and um all this there's so many you know big things to do and he convinced me to leave the the fiat work my fiat job and uh actually take my talents there but specifically what i'm writing about and what i want to get across to people is that like to get them out of that mindset it's just like if you're a great programmer and you're at microsoft and you care about bitcoin there's a lot of options and a lot of ways you can contribute by leaving Microsoft, right? And Microsoft's a great you know, place to hire programmers. They have some of the best in the world or Google or X or whatever, right? Uh, at X, you, if you're a Bitcoiner, like, good luck, man. You're probably going to be dealing with dog money here pretty soon, <laughs> you know? And uh, that's not going to be a super pleasing uh, experience for you. So, uh, so in my writing, again, uh, I keep on managing not to talk about it, um, is... Very generic. It's just saying like, hey, I figured some things out over the last 18 years. Um, they're a little bit different than the way most people do things. And um, I think that that will be attractive for people to see, first of all, that there's an easier way, um, a more consistent way um, to ship quality software to the customers. And then number two on the on the backside of that is just that, and what, what I've been doing the last five years, four years, is, is not all that different from what you're doing at Google, right? We need good people, regardless of where they're at. Uh, one of the things that I'm talking about a lot is like trying to convince people that in software development that you want to solve problems at a higher level of abstraction before you get to a lower level of abstraction. So an example of that is like strategic versus writing lines of code, right? And I developed kind of this like 
uh, along with a lot of my colleagues at Stack Overflow and my boss there, Joel Spolsky, uh, and people like Matt McManus and Drew Bonzel at Unchained and now John um, McGill at ZapRite, is that I, I've developed like a way I like to do it. But this idea of solving problems at a higher layer of abstraction, so sitting vision strategy for a company or even just a product line or something like that before you're writing code doesn't come naturally to a lot of people, it turns out. And uh, that in the uh, the world post, I don't know, 2001, 2002, where the Agile Manifesto, is, uh, which is a phenomenal document, comes out, uh, people seem to have lost the plot a little bit and decided that um, uh, you can never know anything and setting strategy is a waste of time and changing code is easy and fun and we're just going to do that instead and everything, you know, our spec is our code base and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it leads to some really suboptimal, you know, uh, uh, suboptimal way to work and way to be consistently providing value for your customer. Um, uh, but this idea, again, going back to the abstraction level, a good example of that is... Um, you know, it's ZapRite, for instance. Um, if I am uh, going to set up, you know, the the mechanism for it, uh, for uh, connecting merchants and 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 their customers together, if I didn't have a strategy, I might end up building an open node because the first thing I do is like, well, we need to have a wallet so that when the money comes in and it comes to us, that uh, that we can pay out our merchants eventually. But we had a strategy that was. Uh, very antithetical to that. They said like, no, 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 no. The whole point is that we never touch the money. The first thing we have to do, <laughs> right, is decide uh, on what the strategy, how we're going to differentiate ourselves, you know, all those things. Early on, that's just a founder saying something. It's just saying like, this is the type of business I want to do. But as things grow, I'll take the Unchained example. When we built trading there, there's a lot of ways to build that product, right? And if we had just sort of brainstormed for a day and then went out there and started building, we probably would have built it very, very differently. But we had a very, very um, uh, opinionated view of how we were going to differentiate ourselves from uh, the rest of the market. The idea was not just, I mean, we had this line that was just like running around the company buy Bitcoin directly to cold storage with keys that you control. Now, that's not a marketing pitch, but that's good internally, right? Buy Bitcoin directly to cold storage with keys that you control. Okay, that narrows the field of acceptable things to build, right? But then we had to add on some other things. Well, if that's true, you know, that you can do that, you still have to do it faster than if I went and bought Bitcoin at Coinbase yeah. and then you know, just withdrew that to an unchained vault, right? So it actually has to not just be the philosophical, you know, uh, uh, workflow, but it actually has to perform better than the alternatives, right? Or else people will just keep on doing what they're doing. This is your Bitcoin at rest. You've chosen this custody model. Why doesn't it start there, right? We had all these ideas, you know, coming around so that we had a strategy, but we didn't have a specification, right? It's the right level of abstraction to say we've narrowed the playing field down to an acceptable range of software to be built, right? And then we can take that to a team, persuade them that this is a good idea, because if we can't persuade them that it's a good idea, we'll never be able to persuade the market that it's a good idea. But they get excited about it. And then we start writing specs and then we start designing things and then we start getting pumped up and then we start validating this with customers with little prototypes and stuff like that. So 
what I'm arguing most of all is that like later on the process, this gets lost, right? The strategy for the business, it's out there, right? At Unchained, we had lending and we had custody, right? Like the original founder's vision is sort of there, right? And then you have to start remembering to go back to that over and over and over again, right? Um, and uh, what I'm going to argue, you know, in, in the stuff that hopefully the listeners here will read is that um, there's basically five things that, that all successful product development, software development uh, teams do, right? And then I can turn that into basically an invariant, uh, something that never changes, no matter what methodology. This isn't a methodology, a software methodology. You could do Scrum on this. You could do Kanban on this. You could do Waterfall if you wanted. You could do CHGate. It doesn't really matter. It's not a methodology. It's just saying there are five things that, that, that no matter what methodology you're choosing, that good software teams always, always, always do. And it really doesn't matter if you're working at Microsoft or you're working at, on Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin industry. There are some exceptions for open source projects, especially big ones like Bitcoin or Linux. Um, uh, there necessarily can't be a unified vision or a unified, unified strategy. However, right, the, the act of persuasion that I talked about of like, I'm going to set this thing and then I'm going to go try it. That's obviously necessary in Bitcoin. In fact, when Amir Taki set up the bit process for Bitcoin, it was basically come, coming to that acknowledgement that like we didn't have a structured way for people to go out and try to persuade people of how to improve Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin improvement proposal, you know, came about and then Ethereum and all of them copied it. And it's very similar in the Linux world as well. Um, uh, so it still happens even in the Bitcoin world. It's just, it's just a little tweak on that because it's not as centralized. It's not as, you know, um, command and control. Uh, and then, you know, there, there are, you know, other stages in that. So I have, you know, the strategy state phase, I have the discovery phase where you're designing and you're validating and you're specking, uh, whether that's functional specs or technical specs. And then you have a phase where you're actually writing code, you're building, right? For most teams, that's the hardest thing to do. Uh, on my teams, that's the easiest thing to do because we've already solved the higher level abstraction problems, right? And if it's hard on build, if you're writing code and it's really, really hard, that means we didn't solve the problems before. And so this isn't, again, it's not a methodology. It's not saying that like we have to go through these things linearly. It's like, we'll iterate back. We're building and we find out we did a bad job on discovery and we'll go back there and do iterations there and then we'll come back to build or we'll have to fall back to strategy. So it's not prescriptive in that, in that manner. And then once you've built it and you have to do QA, you know, what is QA? It's just making sure that it does what you asked it to do. And then you go to delivery where it's bringing it to the marketplace, right? So it's just these five things. And it sounds so simple that like you would think that everyone does it, but no one does it. Um, you might have teams at a big organization that do it, right? But then you'll have other teams that don't, right? That um, they don't even have bug trackers or anything like that. They're in spreadsheets, you know, tracking this stuff. And in... Um, none of this is to say that like, uh, that this even has to be a long process. You could go through all five of these things in 30 minutes sometimes, you know, if it's an easy decision to make and it's an easy, uh, but if you're inventing something new, it's probably going to take you longer to get through it. Right. Um, and so one of it is just like giving my perspective on software development generally. Right. But two is that 
right now in Bitcoin is like a lot of a lot of the businesses are being started by people who are first time founders, right? They're very, very young. And uh, maybe they haven't worked at a bigger place and had mentorship or something like that. Like, you know, I got so much out of the Joel Spolsky's uh, and Jeff Atwoods who started Stack Overflow. They were very public in their writing about this type of stuff uh, early on. Jeff Patton, uh, Ryan Singer from 37 Signals. These guys, And uh, I, ha I haven't contributed that way, so I want to. And I think that if more Bitcoin companies project a professional look towards the marketplace of possible talent that they can get, that they'll get a lot of that talent. Uh, there's Bitcoiners swarming all over these great software companies right now. And they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to go work at Microsoft and not ship, ship their first line of code until 17 months after they work there. They want to go do it at a Bitcoin company. But it's our responsibility. And hopefully my standing in Bitcoin and my expertise in software development will help some of them start projecting some of that. Nice. Yeah, that's very interesting. I definitely look forward that, to that was a rant. Sorry <laughs> that about that, man. <laughs> no, that was great. That was really good. I definitely look forward to, to reading it. Would you say that a lot of those ideas are effectively taking like a lower time preference to building products or, or is that incorrect? Um, I think it could be perceived that way, but I wouldn't put it under that framing just because what I don't want people to think is that, um, you know, one of the things that came out of the Agile Manifesto, and one of the things that I like about Agile is that it basically just says, guys, the most important thing is getting software into people's hands. And the faster we can do it, the, the more we're going to understand whether we're right or, right or wrong, right? I actually do believe that in most cases. It's not, it's not necessarily true in Bitcoin Core's case. They have to be safer than NASA, yeah. you know, when they build code, you know? Um, so, like, speed is the enemy of, of their process. Um, and in financial services, it's different because, you know, the QA step, you know, uh, phase at a place like Stack Overflow it's not that it's not that important, right? Like uh, we do it, but our customers liked finding bugs and telling us about it because yeah. we had uh, you know a bunch of pedants you know asking and answering questions. They like finding the bugs and telling us what's wrong. At Unchained, they don't like that so much, right? You need to be right the first time, right? And on Bitcoin, you can never be wrong. So it's really it's more domain. Uh, related and how fast you go through it. So I don't want people to think that like this is the slower, steadier way to do uh, software development. That's not true at all. However, um, what I am trying to like sort of juxtapose this against is, you know, in the agile development world, uh, you know, I was get, being kind of flippant about it before, but like what was lost from the agile manifesto to modern, uh, modern uh, teams that do this is that they, they seem to have abdicated any responsibility on knowing what to do at all. It's like, well, no one knows what to do, so we might as well just make code, get it to customers, and see if it works. And if it doesn't, then we'll just go back and make more code and see if that works. And it's like, that's that's a tragedy. That's a disaster. That's just not, I mean, who, who doesn't know what to do? Like, I don't know if I'm if I'm the VP of product or, you know, the CTO or so, someone's got to know what to do. And the Agile Manifesto does not say that you shouldn't write things down, you shouldn't have strategy. The Scrum people got this a little bit more right, but they still operate. I, I like the Scrum process quite a bit, actually, especially for big organizations, but they still are thinking very tactically in terms of like what, what they would think is strategy is very project oriented, which is okay. It's better than not doing it. Right. But you do need these higher levels of subtraction and in software development teams, you need people responsible for it because, you know, if I had gone in and like advocated for trading at unchained, right. 
and then we launch and no one trades. I mean, whose head's supposed to roll for that? It's not the person who wrote the code for it. It was a strategic mistake, right? I think it's a Peter Thiel quote is that like, you know, failure is supposed to happen at a tactical level at a strategic level. It's always a tragedy. No one gets better from it. And there's sort of this fetishization of failure in Silicon Valley. It's like, oh, I pivoted nine times or whatever. It's like, it's like, again, like if you're running an A-B test, it's like, yeah, you expect to fail over and over again. That's fine, right? But if you build the wrong thing and you spend all this treasure, again, it's another symptom of like easy money. It's like, it's like if your investors give you all this money and you go out to the market and no one wants it, that sucks. Like, that sucks. And, um, and someone's got to be responsible for that or some group of people. And I think that in a lot of software development, uh, organizations, no one's taking responsible, uh, uh responsibility for the strategy of their business. Like, and then everything gets blamed and kicked downhill to programming teams. And like, well, you're not building things right. You know, because like we built this thing and no one liked it. It's like, well, what were we supposed to build? And they're like, well, I don't know, but whatever you did didn't work, right? I think a lot of this actually comes out of like contract work from, you know, the Agile Manifesto comes out, I think it's 2000 or 2001. And um, I think a lot of it comes out of the fact that like there wasn't a big consumer internet, you know, type thing yet. Uh, and a lot of people are just doing work with, with uh, like, you know, it was like a, a software development shop doing work for a customer. And so you'd go in and like, here's a fun example in that. Do we have time? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is, uh, is, you know, you go in and uh, this is a real example is the Exxon Valdez happens, right? And a tanker crashes and oil spill all over, you know, Alaska, I think um, up there. And Exxon decides uh, we're going to start drug testing all of all, everyone who operates mach machinery at Exxon. We're also going to include our execs in this as well. It's just like, you know, we're, we're all going to do it. It's like, okay, um, how are you going to do it? It's like, well, we need to build some software, <laughs> you know, to figure out who to, you know, do some randomized, you know, type thing. So the group, the software development group comes in and says, okay, so you want us to build drug testing software to pick out people to do randomized, you know, stuff. Um, you know, uh, how many, how many times should someone be, you know, uh, tested in a year? They're like, well, we want it to be random. It's like, okay, you want it to be random. Um, uh, the CEO is part of this. Like, yeah. So you're okay if the CEO gets drug tested three days in a row. And they're like, no, <laughs> we want it to be random. You're like, well, okay, that could happen. Yeah. And so you can see like at the very, very beginning, they have this requirement random, right? And that's not actually what they want, right? And then you think about how many decisions they have to make in that process. And you have people thinking about software and, and demanding things on the requirement side that don't really understand it. And then all these people that have to write the software and then they do that for three decades. And they're like, this is stupid. We just, how about we just write code, send it to you. You tell if it's good or not, and then we'll write code and send it. And so they get into this sort of agile, you know, type of thing. But, um, as software teams change and there's um, much more like in-house software development, um, you don't, you shouldn't get as many of those frustrations because hopefully your organization is built in a way where like the people setting strategy who are saying like, we need to build drug testing software for the rest of the market are people that understand that domain very, very well. 
right? Uh, I always think that like, not only do you want to solve layer uh, problem, problems at higher levels of, abstra of abstraction before you get to lower ones, but also that domain expertise is more important the higher level of abstraction you're at. So when you're setting strategy, you really need to know your industry. You need to know your customer. You need to know your business model. You need to know all these things really, really well, because again, it's a tragedy if you fail. If you're writing code, it can be super helpful to have domain expertise, but it's not as important, right? Because the consequences are actually lower stakes. Like your failure is actually like less of a tragedy than the strategic failure. Um, and so that's another thing to think about. Like if you have this passion for Bitcoin and stuff like that, it can also be a really good way to rise up in your career and like join a smaller company because that domain expertise is going to be more valuable higher up the chain in terms of the decisions that are being made. Um, again, like what I'm writing is not specific to Bitcoin necessarily yet, but I do think that it applies to Bitcoin companies um, just as much as any other company. Very interesting. Yeah, what do you, what do you think is going to be like the biggest Bitcoin product focus over the next five years? Is it something from like what you're talking about, like really having domain expertise in Bitcoin or like really being careful about identifying their requirements? What do you think? Okay, so let me let me try to get that question. So like, uh, I think that, you know, from, com from a company building standpoint, most mm -hmm. Bitcoin companies are still relatively small. So domain expertise is, again, like it's something that I prioritize a lot. However, I think that like, if you're if you're a really good software developer, right, um, you can build a job board, or you could build a dating profile, uh, a dating site, right. It doesn't really matter. And, and honestly, I believe that that is true of Bitcoin as well. If you're a really good software developer, you can work in Bitcoin, and, and Bitcoin companies should recognize that, right? Is that you, you need to be getting people that are really good at what they do and and bringing them into the Bitcoin sphere, right? Now. I think for culture reasons and things like that, it's advantageous to keep a certain amount of Bitcoin enthusiasm, uh, you know, uh, and passion. Uh, and some would say, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Uh, that, that like, you, you know, there needs to be a good mix of it, but like we also should be bringing in people that are just great at what they do and bring them in. So like what, getting back to the question, like, I don't, I don't think there's like a one-way street on that. I do think that like if you have that domain expertise that there are opportunities to sort of advance your career if, if you have ambitions saying like, I'm a software developer, but I wanna be a CTO, right? Or I wanna be a VP of engineering. It's like, uh, well, one of the best things you can do is join a smaller company. Most Bitcoin companies are smaller and if that's your passion, well, there's a lot of opportunities for you right now. Yeah, it's fair. This might be one of the, the last questions. Sure. It's, it's a question from Phil Geiger from the Unchained team. Ah. He, he wanted me to say his name, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, what's your favorite sci-fi book and why? <sighs> Whatever one I'm reading now. Uh, I'm, I'm reading uh, the first in Revelation Space from Alistair Reynolds right now, and I can't stop. It's so good. I like, I like him so much. But honestly, my, my favorite is uh, I read all the Robert Heinlein books as a kid. Uh, and uh, my dad gave me those. They, they hold a special place for me. And then uh, the first time I read a really adult book was The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which is almost become a cliche in like libertarian circles as like one of the great libertarian books, which is about a libertarian uprising on the moon on a, on a 
basically a, a, a penal colony on the on the on the on the moon and um but uh it's one of Heinlein's best most quotable you know books uh, there is this is where Tim Staffel comes from uh there ain't no such thing as a free lunch um which is another libertarian favorite thing uh to say it's also i can't remember which essay Parker wrote an essay. It's the one I made one contribution ever to gradually and suddenly, which is he wrote this thing. I was like, you have to put in this, this exchange from moon's Horse mistress where they explain 10 Staffel, uh, and, and like why it's like an important concept to get. And so he put it in and then like fast forward six months, uh, and, uh, micro sailors buying, <laughs> you know, Bitcoin. And he writes something to Parker saying like, Hey, you're, writings were very influential by the way i love that you put that moose heart's mistress thing oh wow it's my favorite book too yeah uh no uh moose heart's mistress but currently right now it's alistair reynolds uh mm-hmm. the revelation space uh pushing ice house of suns he's unbelievable yeah. big ideas really yeah. big ideas do you, have you felt or do you ever feel like bitcoin as a technology is kind of like living in a sci-fi book like it's it's i feel like to some extent like technology would be as adoption grows, it could change so many things within society that the world may look completely different from how it looks today. Yeah. I mean, like d- despite the fact that you have a lot of dystopian sci-fi type yeah. uh, things, most of them are actually very optimistic futures. Right. And one of the things that doesn't come up in many, there are uh, very few examples is no one has any problem with money in the future. Uh, resources have kind of been figured out and exchange and trade and stuff like that. It's just been kind of solved. And so I like to imagine that, um, that most of them have just figured out cryptographic censorship resistant money, um, that, that no central authority controls and that that's why they don't have any of these problems. Because certainly if, uh, you're, uh, exploring your solar system or even the galaxy, uh, larger star systems, um, uh, you're not going to be, uh, trading in uh, USD. I can tell you that much. Yeah. That's yeah. fair. Well, Will, this was awesome. I really enjoyed getting a chance to sit down with you and talk yeah. about Bitcoin. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah.